2: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback.
3: Welcome back to Point of Origin. Today, we pay homage to coffee's African origins and roots from East Africa to the East Bay. Up first, with coffee entrepreneur Keba of Red Bay Coffee, he discusses his journey from pioneering African American coffee roaster to, in his own words, the largest black owned coffee company in the world. And Burundi, Janine Nyonzima Aroian, teaches us what makes Burundi an ideal coffee supplier. And finally, we chat with Doug Hewitt of 1951 Coffee in Oakland, California, a nonprofit organization providing job training for refugees. Today on Point of Origin, it's Black Coffee.
4: We, you know, find ourselves, you know, really situated in this specialty coffee movement where, you know, things are really growing and a lot of awareness around origins of coffee. And there was maybe 10, 15 years ago, the sort of so-called third wave of coffee really came to the forefront with companies like Stumptown and Blue Bottle.
3: On the walls of Red Bay Coffee HQ in Fruitvale, California, is a huge living sculpture of Africa by way of hanging plants in the shape of the continent's outline. And the background is the hum of roasting machines embellished by the ambient buzz of a diverse cross-section of the Bay Area community. Red Bay has never just been a quick stop for coffee and always a hub for the neighborhood. Here, Keba is explaining coffee in the way that it is most often talked about within and around the industry, using the nomenclature of waves.
4: What I'm seeing emerging now is a, maybe a fourth wave of coffee mm-hmm. that's really addressing not just the quality of coffee, but in addition to that, the movement around it, the really the the, the impact that we're having on the environment and on our various communities.
3: And When you talk about this movement, can you summarize what this sort of third and fourth wave coffee movement is for people who might not be aware with that? version? Sure.
4: The third wave coffee movement, you know, really began, like I said, about 15 years ago. And it was around a couple of principles. It was around roasting coffee to its sweet spot not over roasting it really trying to roast a lot lighter than it had historically been to really reveal more of the nuances of of, of the coffee and and how it reflects the terroir of the you know origin where it was grown the environment um so and and really being a lot more transparent about the origins where these you know, uh, particular farms came from these micro lots. Also the third wave had to do with in, in the cafes, kind of a certain aesthetic coffee. So that's a rough summary
0: mm-hmm.
4: of what sort of the third wave was. It, it was it was post Starbucks, which was, you know, kinda of like a second wave if, if if you will. One other thing that was not necessarily part of the third wave, but was just how it was, which is it's uh, you know, very white elite elitist space in terms of these kind of fancy uh, specialty coffee shops. So this this next wave, you know, really just kind of taking form is just you're seeing a lot more folks who are reflecting the, some, some of these origin countries, whether it's, you know, folks from, you know, the Latinx community or African-Americans participating, but really the the net is getting wider and more people are starting to enter into this space. Actually, 2018 was the first time that they just gathered some data where it showed that african americans are the fastest growing consumers of specialty coffee wow you know so and coffee overall has sort of flatlined in terms of growth but it's um, so there's that whole movement. What we're tapping into, right? And I so mean, some of the things- Let's be
3: real though. You're not really tapping yeah. into it. You kind of are the movement, though. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like i are being kind of <laughs> modest right now because you're talking about uh, this burgeoning group of black coffee drinkers. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, I came in on the third wave, but you know, like you, you are the uh, the black coffee roaster in the states, right? So. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I was saving that for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my job is to let people get the, the full context. So N- no, for sure. And that's why I want to talk to you, you know, because yeah. it is, you guys started in 2014. And, yep. you know, it's, we're we're now five years in, you guys are continuing to grow. And I have in my time in Oakland, very much experienced the amount of enthusiasm and excitement, especially black and brown folks in Oakland have uh, felt around your brand and the mm-hmm. quality of the coffee that you all are, are selling. But how did you, as a, as a black man who was an artist and entrepreneur, I mean, you had a restaurant in Berkeley, how did you find your way into the, the coffee game? And uh, once you landed there, how much of your awareness, uh, self-awareness as a black man in the space has uh, influenced uh, the way that you've run and grown Red Bay?
4: Like a lot of people in the coffee industry, didn't necessarily seek out to be in the coffee industry, but kind of came in the back door, so to speak. So uh, that was new to me. And, um, but um, just having impact, hiring, building a team, helping, you know, support um, people, it was um, just a really fascinating path. Uh, So that's kind of how I got into it, through the arts, into the coffee, the coffee really took off, opened a second coffee shop, now I got two coffee shops. It's time to tap into some of the relationships I've, I've had established around the world as a, as a photojournalist, um, traveling to many African and Central American and Caribbean coffee origin countries. Um, so I wanted to kind of cut out the middleman and start sourcing my own coffee. And so that was a whole, you know, um, uh, experience onto itself, uh, in terms of you know, just my path on, on, on teaching myself on how to roast coffee and kind of enter into that level of the game.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's a good point that you mentioned about these countries of origin, because one of the weird things about coffee, or maybe not that weird at all, is that most of the countries that are growing and producing the coffee uh, are exactly the opposite of the countries who are importing The coffee and consuming the coffee. So, when you moved into uh, the idea of roasting and uh, having a little bit more of a stake in the supply chain, how much was that on your mind uh, when you made that decision?
4: Uh, Well, it's something I was very aware of. You know, like I had mentioned in in these sort of third wave coffee shops, you know, just the overall uh, culture was very homogenous. Uh, This is something that, you know, white folks have have adopted and and fetishized specialty coffee, along with a lot of other components of Black culture. Coffee started in Africa, Ethiopia, to be specific. You know, the more I was learning about the history of coffee and the origins of coffee, and it just seemed to go against the grain of the popular misconception that coffee started in Italy or Seattle or Colombia or something. So that was uh, something that was important to me. It was actually even tapped into some of the work I did as a photojournalist, which was wanting to sort of reveal some of the stories uh, in Africa, uh, in African diaspora that were, I think, you know, uh, misconceived images and understandings of of Africa, right? Where it's not just a desolate place with misery and, you know, suffering, but, you know, vibrant, rich cultures with lush lanes and, you know, there's hard times too, but... As a photographer and artist, I wanted to, I was compelled to show and tell some of those stories. Uh, I'm seeing more and more entrepreneurs of color um, getting into coffee. It's a $50 billion a year industry, so this is an enormous industry of technology, education, training, importing, exporting.
3: For people who are not up on coffee, uh, who can't really understand or rationalize like a $3 or $4 cup of coffee. um, Can you talk about some of the, the distinguishing characteristics from some of the regions that you all work with and how that has an impact on premium coffee?
4: If you think about the spectrum of quality and prices that come with the industry like wine, coffee, Before really specialty coffee emerged as a thing, it was really just the cheapest coffee, roasted, really dark. So it's all sort of a sameness and predictability of um, of of mediocrity, and it was cheap, and you know, and it had caffeine, and that was sort of the thing. So as as the industry started to kind of specialize and try to elevate the quality. You know the level of investment the level of labor that goes into it you know the complexity you know of specialty coffee is as much or greater than than wine special thing is once you start sort of um, exploring outside of lattes and cappuccinos and flavored drinks and so yeah i would just encourage everyone who's listening to this you know next time you're coffee shop and you have a few extra minutes, you know, um, order a pour over and just talk to the barista about some of the, the different options. And, you know, you may pay a dollar more and wait a few more minutes. Um, uh, but, uh, go for it and, and invest, invest in that.
3: Right on. And what is next for red Bay coffee?
4: Sign the lease. On a, on a building in South LA. And we're just broke ground this week on the construction wow. of it. And uh, yeah, it's very exciting. You know, so what we're building is a public roastery, but our spaces are also uh, open to the public. They're cafes, they're uh, venues for doing all sorts of events. So that's one of the things that distinguishes Red Bay Coffee from most coffee companies. We create platforms for community engagement we did 200 events last year in Oakland at our public roastery there so this will be our second public roastery and um uh, it's you know 11,000 square feet um and there will be you know design there will be art you know events around you know um uh, you know a uh, uh, independent films or, you know, fundraisers for 50 black women running for political office, conferences around educating the black child to live music and, you know, pole dancing demonstrations. and I mean, really, it's really a reflection of, of the community. It's really a manifestation of what is, is, is uh, around us in, in the community. Red Bay Coffee is the largest black-owned coffee company in the world and um and we're making our impact we're we're you know doing what we do in terms of storytelling and marketing and and um to make specialty coffee more approachable in terms of you know really how it's you know thinking about some of these relationships you know what i have seen mostly in the industry it's a lot more sort of baristas of color Mm -hmm. right so it's visibly you're you're seeing it change on the very front lines, uh, not as much in the boardrooms and ownership and, and really executive leadership of some of the more competitive companies. Uh, I'm, I'm not really seeing it there yet. Uh, I'm seeing more and more entrepreneurs of color um, getting into coffee. It's a $50 billion a year industry. and There's just such a, a, a vast array of um, career paths and opportunities Um, i'm always encouraging folks to to you know explore them
1: right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring
0: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
5: I was born and raised in Burundi, which is uh, Central East Africa. It's a very small, tiny country, and we call it the heart of Africa as a matter of fact but landlocked, uh, sharing borders with Rwanda to the north, Tanzania to the east, and then uh, Congo to the west.
3: Burundi native Janine Nyonzima Aroian is the owner and founder of JNP Coffee.
5: Yeah, so Burundi is a producing, it's a a coffee producing country, actually, uh, which most people, you know, not everybody knows about it. Uh, but we didn't drink coffee actually when I was growing up in in, in my own home. Coffee, we actually drink more tea. Tea is more like the, the you know the culture you know in in Burundi, and um, coffee mainly was used for as a as a cash crop. In
3: 2012, Janine founded JNP Coffee and has since won multiple awards for her specialty coffees and development strategies, which have consistently prioritized participation and equity for women working at the point of origin. Prioritizing gender equality, supporting financial literacy and education, plus development of leadership skills, Janine today is the only woman who is a majority shareholder in a large Burundian coffee conglomerate.
5: Uh, Burundi is a very small country. It, it's actually the size of Maryland state. Um, wow. And then because it's so small also, um, there is a, a scarcity of land. Uh, there is 11 million people living in Burundi. Wow. Um, and really we kind of like live on the top of each other, if you might say, because of, you know, uh, how small the country is and, and, and also um, um, what can be produced from that country. So when we really talk about coffee that's produced from Burundi, um, it's, it's, it's very little compared to how much coffee is produced in places like, you know, Brazil. Um, so because of that, the opportunity actually to be able to make the coffee from Burundi very special and very unique is there. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not overwhelming. We don't use machinery, you know, but, you know, the cherries are picked by hand, uh, doing the um, harvest season every year uh, by the farmers. And um, so, the, you know, the, the labor work, it's very intensive. This is something also some most people don't understand is the amount of time and energy that goes into really making that cup of perfect cup of coffee that you end up by consuming every morning that we all look forward to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, you know, labor-wise, it is, it is very intensive because as I say in Burundi, coffee is picked by hand. There's no machineries. Um, and it's it's delivered to the nearest you know wet meal, and usually that's about an hour. Uh, or so of a walk. So most of the uh, pickers, you know, would actually deliver on the on the head. Um, some of them, who are you know, fortunately have a bicycle. They were actually put on a bicycle, so it can be delivered to the nearest, you know, wet mill on on bicycle. And then once the coffee actually get to the wet mill, it get there is like another level of process. You know, they, they had there is this flotation process that the coffee had to go through. And after the flotation, which means the you know the good things they take it out, the bad things they throw it away. And then after that, the coffee goes into a uh, uh, a machinery which called the depulping, um, which removes the skin of uh, you know the, the cherry, and then it goes into um, uh, the soaking overnight soaking of the cherries into um, um, tanks, you know, until you know that the, the, what they call the mucilage to be able to remove that you know uh, mucilage on on, uh, on the on, you know on the beans. And then from there they wash it and then it goes on to what they call to raise African beds. And that is like a 30 days time to really turn and um, turning and and moving and covering of the of, of the bean until it dries out and then goes to the dry meal, uh, then, which goes through the last process before it gets export. So it's, a, it's very labor intense, uh, but because of the nature of the country being small and the amount of coffee that's being produced in Burundi, it's small relative to what goes on in other bigger countries um, uh, or major countries, which also is also in my point of view as an opportunity to really make the Burundi coffee just amazingly, exceptionally um, well.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's so small, it actually gives you a larger opportunity in the global marketplace yeah. because it's uh, a more specialty item.
5: Uh, for me, another reason I really got into more coffee and, and, and um, left the corporate world was the ability, as I said about this, you know, special beans from Burundi, the ability that we actually, we could, you know, utilize this bean to uh, alleviate people out of poverty.
3: In 2008, before starting JNP Coffee, Janine started a nonprofit called Burundi Friends International, an economic empowerment initiative to create sustaining communities in Burundi. In the last four years alone, JNP has paid over a quarter million dollars in the form of bonuses and premiums, which encourage quality and ensure economic sustainability.
5: So I actually use this as a way to kind of empower you know, farmers in Burundi to kind of um, uh, provide them, you know, um, an opportunity to be able to get the extra, you know, income in by incentivizing and empowering uh, the farmers to produce the high quality, uh, you know, cup of coffee, because we always go back and provide what we call the second payment in the form of a premium, then again, to encourage them to continuously, you know, produce a high quality, uh, you know, coffee. Uh, but in terms of, uh, so I'm involved from everything, you know, as I say, from, uh, you know, dealing with farmers, you know, I, I get calls from farmers all the time um, that, that, we, that we deal with to, uh, you know, dealing with wet meals. So we also, uh, I happen to also have some uh, shares in some of the wet meals, which is the processing, you know, centers uh, in Burundi to um, uh, making sure that every single time I always tell people, it's like every cherries that we provide is JNP coffee, we have been involved from that chair from the time we get picked from the tree to the time we actually get delivered to the windmill, we just follow it all the way through. As, as, as an owner, I, I get involved from, you know, farmers wanting to work with us and figuring out who we want to work with and how we're going to support them to making sure that uh, uh, you know the coffee uh, we select the right coffee and then we bring forward the right coffee to exporting as a matter of fact right now as we are speaking um, i just uh, finishing uh, putting some uh, coffee on trucks that uh, are leaving burundi and we have some containers that have already left you know the port of tanzania heading um, you know to the state so this 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 is the whole taking with talking about the whole picture What i get involved from knowledge just, you know, what coffee, what regions that, you know, our coffee come from, but so also really getting the coffee, you know, um, move smoothly and, and safely from Burundi to getting to port in the U.S. to then finally getting to our rosters, you know, throughout the, uh, the country, in this case in the U.S., but also uh, in other part of the world, because we also work in, in, in Europe and uh, in Asia.
3: Mm-hmm. Janine, can you help us understand Burundi and its coffee from a terroir perspective
5: very good question so um first of all i think as i had mentioned earlier brewing is an absolutely gorgeous country <laughs> so it's a bit and and, it, and it, you don't i didn't know myself how beautiful it is actually until i went back uh, which is very interesting uh but it's very hilly um and uh, coffee usually grow from anywhere um, around six you know six thousand feet above sea level um, and um, uh, the weather is very cool in the countryside where the, you know, coffee uh, grows, it's usually on hills, um, and uh, the soil itself, it's a volcanic soil. It's actually kind of a reddish soil, which is very good uh, when it comes to um, uh, providing the right nutrients, you know, for, uh, you know, for the cherries. So it also helps, you know, to hold the water very well in the cherries, and as I say, also produce like the, uh, the right uh, ingredients that uh, the cherries need to grow and, and, and grow well.
3: Burundi's volcanic soil and modest annual rainfall contribute to a perfect environment for growing coffee. Volcanic soil is rich in nutrients such as nitrogen, which coffee plants really, really need. Burundi's Arabica coffee grows at a high altitude, which contributes to the bright acidity, sweetness and complexity of these full-bodied coffees.
5: And then there's the sunshine, so uh, it's cooler during the day, early in the morning, uh, kind of like the Bay Area actually climates, if I might say, and then during the middle of the day, you know, the sun just like, you know, just shine on, on you know, on, on the trees and then on the cherries, which is something that also uh, uh, helps, you know, the, you know the, the cherries to grow very well. And then at nighttime, it goes down to our cooling, which also preserve and help, uh, you know, the cherries, you know, grow properly. Um, so, yeah, so very high elevation. Um, and also I uh, do, I uh, do, um, uh, volcanic soil of, of, of Burundi and also the cooler weather um, and also being able to uh, grow on the hills really helps I guess the coffee from Burundi very unique and, and, and Burundi also have like as, when you talk about terroir there are different areas there's like the northern part of Burundi uh, which is you know share borders with Rwanda which is the Kayanza and Gozi and there is the central part of Burundi which also um, uh, it's another different terroir when it, it you know comes to a coffee coming from one area to another one You think you find In in my point of view, I find more lemony citrus and from one side, and I find more chocolate and spices from the other side, from the other part of the country. And then there is actually a new terroir we also are trying. We have recently discovered, which is more on the uh, north um, east part of the country. um, That's more kind of like crisp, clean. You know, in terms of like the uh, uh, the taste notes that you can find into the the coffee and and, in. Um, additional to this, you know, a sparkling acidity uh, that you usually would expect to uh, find in some very well-prepared coffee from Burundi.
3: Wow. God,
5: I love it. So <laughs> it's, it's very interesting because I also think that, you know, each coffee in my point of view, each of the different terroir coffee um, of our coffee has a home. So they always, they always tell you even like, you know, high-end coffee to just not so high-end coffee, each coffee has a home. Uh, but it, it really, I think that's, we are, we are very lucky um, to the, to, from the fact that, you know, it, I, I really, I, I choose who I sell my coffee to most of the times. So um, I, I do know people who understand who are going to, uh, you know, treat the coffees well, who also are al- aligned with our value. Uh, because above and beyond just the quality, which this is the first and foremost, you know, for my business and has always been um, that I always, you know, strive for, um, you know, companies also have to be aligned in terms of like our values and, and, and what we understand. So I tried to kind of like, you know, pick, you know, based on that. And um, because to me, producing the great coffee from Burundi and bringing the great coffee from Burundi to the world market is so wonderful. But what else are we doing for the people?
3: And what are the politics of land in Burundi? Because you mentioned earlier, it's a really densely populated country. So what is the relationship among the citizens and the farmers?
5: So the political dynamics are, are, are around the land is, is very interesting because I'm chuckling because uh, one of my belief and one of the things that I'm, my company is very well known for is the fact that we empower women. Um, and the reason that we have like a very small program on empowering women is because women in Burundi usually, you know, did not have right to own land. Um, so if um, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, if a husband or father, or a man who is like a head of the of uh, of the of, uh, of the um, household, passed away, um, the wife does not acquire ownership of the land. However, women in Burundi are expecting and also do are the ones who do work the land. They work the land. Um, they are the one who provide, for, you know, who, who do all the work, in, you know, in the house, but not they're not, not necessarily the one who end up by, um, you know, owning that land. So in most, you know, cases in Burundi, when, when the husband passed away, uh, the sons, you know, get ownership of the land. And then um, in, in this case, if he doesn't have the sons, then, you know, maybe the brother gets, you know, ownership of the land. Um, so it, it's, it's very, it was very difficult for me growing up and actually seeing this, the fact that the women were the one who were doing all the work um, in you know in the background, but were actually the one who have you know no right to anything. I think the is work is to really make this industry sustainable um, as much as possible. Um, I strive in my work and what I do with JNT Coffee to uh, make it as sustainable as possible. Uh, the coffee that I'm trading today only focused on Burundi because it, it's what I believe that needs to be done and, and to be able to um, help my people. So in my in the ideal world for me is just look at way to actually make this industry sustainable. Uh, you know, encourage and bring the youth you know along. Uh, empower women because when you empower women more things can be done for the families and for the communities in my point of view and what I had also experienced and also um, uh, incentivize you know quality and then pay the farmers the right price and that's something that's it's very hard to be discussing about right now when the sea market is rounding one you know one one and one in some change dollar um you know per pound so um it, it's very very hard and and most people actually don't even understand some people think that fur trade anything that says fur trade that's the best value but actually fur trade is just like few cents above the sea market mm. Uh, we always, in our case, we always pay way above and beyond, you know, fur trade, so we don't even touch the fur trade part because we are already above and beyond the fur trade price, are, are, you know, is are, are of today. Um, but I think that's really working hard to uh, make sure that the farmers are uh, being uh, compensated right for the, uh, you know, the, the product that they work so hard for is extremely important. Is when I had a chance to actually see the you know just the wide variety of amazing coffee that were produced from Burundi and and um, uh, the potential really at that time for me I realized the potential that wow you know something really to be done can be done with coffee to um, you know even help the the people of Burundi even further.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I I think it's very confusing with labeling. It's so frustrating to see a lot of well-intentioned consumers who want to do the right thing, but continue to support brands that really aren't worthy of that support. Because we've been trained to think that these labels are actually what we need to support full stop, and that's just not accurate. Is there a more appropriate label to signal to customers that this is a company that pays above fair trade? Or is there a way for us as consumers to try and support exporters? and intermediaries like yourself, who are more deeply invested in the well-being of the workers. Basically, I'm just asking, how can we be better coffee consumers?
5: Actually, like you say, the consumer don't understand what the consumer just don't understand. And um, um, and, and I'm not trying to put down for a trade. I think it, it, it's a starting point in my point of view, because I think it's a starting point of creating awareness um, so there is so many terminology that are being used out there, like, you know, direct trade, uh, you know, ethically um, uh, sourced um, and so forth. But I think that's one just have to, you know, to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, in my point of view, like, in, you know, for our company, you know, we, you know, I'm from Burundi first and foremost. So I actually, I, I owe my people. Uh, by choice, you know, I, you know, I don't have to. You know, there are a lot of people from Burundi who have, you know, who left the country and they are not necessarily go back um, in, to work in their own countries or do something for their own people. So I think mm-hmm. there are some great companies out there who are doing the right thing. But it's a question about really getting educated and actually really doing your own research and then trying to find out which one are doing what they say they are doing and which one are aligned with your value and which one do you want to support, you know, for that same reason.
6: So I was in graduate school um, here in the Bay Area and was studying intercultural studies. Just you know, I was very interested in, in understanding the world and getting to find ways that I could make an impact in the in the world. Lauren, I got a job just like many people working uh, in a cafe. Needed to have a, a part time job to pay for things while I was in school, Um, and there was another guy who was hired to work alongside of me around the same time, and both of us became friends. He was from Eritrea.
3: The voice you just heard is that of Doug Hewitt. Doug is the owner and founder of 1951 Coffee in Berkeley, California.
6: And he began to tell me his story of of fleeing Eritrea and why he had fled and fleeing into Sudan and making his way across the Sahara Desert into Libya and making his way across the Mediterranean, this whole long story before he finally was able to reach the United States and to settle and to live here. I had I had never heard a story uh, like that before. This was in 2007, and it suddenly opened my mind up to a, a world that I, I didn't know much about. Um, but getting to know him and getting to know his community kind of introduced me to to refugees.
3: 1951 Coffee is a nonprofit specialty coffee organization that supports the Bay Area refugee and asylee community through providing job training and employment opportunities?
6: Yeah, so we, we are a cafe. Oh, we actually have three cafes. Mm-hmm. We're a coffee company. Um, and we also have uh, a barista training program that we operate. that trains, um, obviously, trains people to be baristas. Um, potentially about 25 of those people um, can work in our cafes in the positions that we have. But then we also have a network of other coffee companies here in the San Francisco Bay Area um, that will also hire our graduates because that was something in the process of creating our own cafes that we came across is here in the specialty coffee community in the Bay Area, there is a need for for baristas. There's a need for, for workers, and especially people who want to be in that industry and to to, to make that a career. Um, and so when we kind of came across that, we realized we were in in the right place and the right you know thing where we have an industry that is in need of people that want to be there and to be there for a while. Um, and we also have this pool of people who are new to the country who are looking for a place to be. In a place where they can put down roots and really start a career, we work. Uh, the largest number of people that we that we work with are actually from Eritrea and East Africa. And if anyone knows anything about Eritrea, they have a very close shared history um, with Ethiopia, which is, Ethiopia is the birthplace of of coffee, um, and has a very extensive coffee culture, um, and that is also shared with Eritrea. Um, And so very often for for Eritreans, sitting down over a cup of coffee is not a 5, 10, 20 minutes, or an hour experience. Very often it can be a three-hour experience of intentionally roasting the coffee in front of your guest and sharing the experience of the aroma of the coffee. As it roasts, and then the the making of the coffee, and intentionally going through the three cups of coffee, and going through you know a process. And so for you know for us making a, a cup of coffee and being detailed in the process, to someone from Eritrea, they're like, this is this is how you're supposed to do coffee. Coffee is not something that you just drink on you know on a whim when you're running to work. Like it is a process. It is a ceremony. Um, and so I think you know very often it's just it's finding those connecting points. Whether it's someone from Eritrea who who. Understands understand the detail of of coffee and the elegance of coffee and you know at, at its core um but then with people who who grew up in cultures you know afghanistan where tea and the use of saffron and things is you know is also in that same way it's a very high quality high luxury thing, but something that you you do when you are being hospitable toward your guests. And finding those connecting points with each person in each culture to communicate that process, and you find that ultimately that idea of serving people well is, is a very universal thing.
3: Fourth Wave Coffee, Fair Trade, Fair Wages... As is so often the case in the verbiage of sustainability, much of the language is lost in translation between who is being marketed to and who is being supported. The resources almost certainly end up directed towards the consumers and far less so towards those on the ground who create all of the value. And within that language, so much is communicated that goes beyond the words that are used. I'm thinking about the U.S. political language and the difference between working class and poor. Sustainability and the kinds of brands who promote it and the places that purvey it further the gap, not only between those who benefit and those who perpetuate, but also the gap between who is welcome and who isn't. Much of the work that we present is about reclamation because we recognize the power of the kind of inclusion that moves beyond language and instead is rooted in the truth of one's own history. Knowing coffee comes from Africa and African people supersedes the superlatives that are used to sell coffee. It doesn't mean that we should abandon earnest efforts of collective improvement. It just means that we should absorb that history and in doing so, whose language we prioritize. Reclaiming our stories closes the gap between producer and consumer, and who gets to indulge versus who must labor. And particularly for specialty coffee, changes the images of the faces that we see when we think about ownership, leisure, knowledge, and craft. We'd like to thank our guest today, Kay Conti of Red Bay Coffee in Fruitvale, California. To Janine Nyanzuma aroian from JNP Coffee and to all of the incredible women coffee farmers that she works with in Burundi. Thank you to Doug Hewitt of 1951 Coffee in Oakland, California. You can learn more about this episode in our guest at whetstonemagazine.com podcast or on IG at whetstonemagazine. We'll be back next week with our second to last episode of the season where we'll be talking about the morality of meat I'm your host, Stephen Siderfield. We'll see you back here next week with more from the world of food from around the world. Peace. We'd also like to thank our incredible podcast producer, Celine Glager. Celine, you are the best. To our editor and Whetstone partner and director of video, David Alexander in London. Appreciate you, Dave. Thanks to our Whetstone production intern, Quentin LeBeau. And last but not least, my business partner, Mel Shi, who makes all things at Whetstone possible. Thank you, Mel. We'd also like to thank our partners in production at iHeartRadio, to Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer, and executive producer, Christopher Haciotis. We'll be back next week with more from the world of food worldwide. Point of origin listeners, as you know, rating and reviewing our podcast is the very best way for more people to find out about our very important work at Whetstone. So please, if you're able, we would really appreciate a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast that will help others like yourself find out about point of origin.
1: Right here, right now, find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring